The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus said to his disciples, I have come to set the earth on fire, and how I wish it were already blazing. There is a baptism with which I must be baptized, and how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to establish peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, a household of five will be divided, three against two and two against three. A father will be divided against his son and a son against his father, a mother against her daughter and a daughter against her mother, a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The Gospel of the Lord. This past week, I was in Sandusky, Ohio, visiting my family. And as I try to do when I go there, especially during the summer, is set aside some part of a day to go to Cedar Point. But when I started seeing all those cars driving down and thought of all those lines and how hot it was, I decided I could pass this year. But I did take a few little work-related tasks to do, and one of them was to update my uh, dress book, to make sure I had correct phone numbers and all of that information. And so I sat there at my sister's kitchen table with all of my papers and phone and Rolodex. And my nephew, sophomore in college, walked in and he said, what is that? I said, it's a Rolodex. <laughs> he said, what's it for? I said, well, you put addresses in there, phone numbers, business cards. He said, you know, you can put all that on your phone, right? I said, yeah, I know. I want to have two sources of information. And he's kind of, you know, how they are. They roll their eyes and walk away and made me feel like I was from a different century. And I felt like one of those medieval monks with my quill and my ink, illuminating manuscripts. Nothing like your own flesh and blood to make you feel old, huh? But it struck me how very quickly and drastically technology has changed our lives, overnight practically. And while so many other things have changed because of that, there are still some things that haven't changed. Issues, realities that we still wrestle with as human beings. 
one of which is the age-old struggle with theodicy. Why God permits evil. It's the age-old, recurring, sometimes faith-shattering dilemma that so many people find themselves in at times, asking, how can we believe in a God who is both omnipotent, all-powerful, and all-loving, but who still permits bad things to happen to good people? Why does evil even exist? And that question has been asked since the days of Job in the Old Testament to the earliest Christians who suffered persecution, to all of the millions of people throughout time who endured pandemics and plagues and war, terror, even those recently, those suffered from the Holocaust, 9-11, all the innocent people in Ukraine, you see, the question never goes away. And all of those people, I'm sure, have wondered, why would God allow this tragedy, heart-wrenching pain that devastates not just individuals, but entire nations? Some would even argue that it's not even possible any longer to maintain faith in a loving God, especially when a person is in the pits of life. Look at Jeremiah in the first reading. He had a horrific task. For 50 years, he had to preach to the people of Israel that there was an impending doom that was about to strike the land because of their infidelity and their sin against God. And he was preaching this at a time when things were going relatively well for the people. And when things are going well, nobody wants to hear doom and gloom. Even when the Babylonians were at the city gate, ready to invade, the people were just unaware of that, wanted to disregard it. Jeremiah kept preaching it. They were getting angrier and angrier. They no longer considered him just a nuisance, but now he was even a traitor, demoralizing the people. And so what do you do when you don't like the message? You go after the messenger, and that's what they did. They threw him into the pit, a cistern with no food, no water, hoping he would die. And had it not been for ebed Malik who came to the rescue, that is probably exactly what would have happened. But there he was, sinking in that mud with clenched teeth and clenched fists, I imagine, probably asking, what did I do wrong? Did I misunderstand God? Did I hear the wrong message I was supposed to preach? Or has God turned against me like everybody else? What's going on? Over and over, the question must have been, why me? As he sinks deeper and deeper into the mud of that pit. Nothing in the Bible tells us that Jeremiah ever got an answer to that question. 
But I'd like to think he learned a valuable lesson about God and about himself. That just because one finds him or herself into the pits of life, that's not an indication that God is in any way displeased with us, that this is some form of punishment. Because when we look through the pages of history, we find countless very good people who have suffered tragedy, hardship, and pain. There was Jeremiah, Isaiah, Peter and Paul, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Martin Luther King Jr., and we can add our own names to that list. All good people who at one point or another found themselves sinking in the pit. And hopefully they all learned that that didn't mean God was unhappy with them. A second lesson to learn from all of this is from Jesus. You know, in today's gospel, we heard some very uh, stark and foreboding predictions. He's come to set a fire on earth, to breed division, especially within the most intimate bonds of family life. And in all of that, Jesus knows what's ahead of him, too. He's on his way to Jerusalem, where he will be forsaken by his Father. And that will be the prayer he utters from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if tragedy like that can come even to Jesus, no human being can ever think of himself or herself as exempt from that kind of misfortune that strikes all of our lives. We don't know why, it just does. What we do know from Jesus is that precisely at that time when he felt most God-forsaken on the cross, he experienced something new, the likes of which has never been seen in the world before. We don't even have a good word for it. We call it resurrection. In the moment of Jesus' darkness, when he was in the pit of despair and desolation, God was closest to him than he had ever been before. And God came not to rescue Jesus from the pit, but to redeem him from it. He transformed the pit and made it no longer a symbol of the grave, but the threshold to new life. For in that darkness, God's light dawned. That can be a source of comfort and hope for all of us, all of us whose lives get punctuated by times that we have to spend in pits of despair. And the comfort can be to believe that God is doing something new for us there and that God is not displeased with us. God's love has not abandoned us. 
And although we will never know the mind of God, there is something we have to always know and remember. Because when our lives are going well, when our bodies are strong and healthy and family and friends support us and we feel peaceful and secure, it's ever so easy to trust in God. It's when those things aren't there that our trust is shaken. But while it is being shaken, it's also being strengthened and deepened. I once received a greeting card, the message of which I thought was profound. It read, Never doubt in the darkness what you believed in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what you believed in the light. Because all of the things that we learn and integrate into our lives, when it's light, when things are going well, all of that spiritual stuff is there to sustain us when we hit the pit, when we encounter the darkness. And that's why we can never afford to forget it. Never doubt in the darkness what you believed in the light. Our Rolodexes may become obsolete. Greeting cards may become obsolete. But God's commitment to us to be with us always, especially in the darkness, that reality is here to stay. 